From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Being lucky isn't enough. You know, making the right decisions significantly increases the likelihood of a positive outcome. And that should be the goal of everybody who's involved in management and healthcare. That's Frank Cohen talking about the importance of data in a medical practice. We'll hear more from Frank later in the show, and we'll also talk to Linda Berry about applying key metrics to a data set. And we'll hear from Tim Smith about being a lifelong data skeptic. That's all coming up on this episode devoted entirely to data. But first, a word from our sponsors. Sweeping changes in healthcare directly impact the staffing model of today's medical practices. MGMA's new book, Staffing the Medical Practice, will help you create and retain a high-performing care team. For more information and a preview of the book, visit mgma.com staffing. Every year, a team at MGMA compiles data from thousands of medical practices across the country. To discuss the importance of using data in your practice, we have Ashley Voss, MGMA data analyst in studio. Hey, Ashley, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, as a data analyst at MGMA, you work very closely with MGMA Data Dive. I hear about that all the time. What is it? I mean, explain it to our listeners. What is Data Dive? Yeah, absolutely. So, Data Dive is a user platform that folks can go in and really dive into what is going on in the industry as far as compensation, cost and revenue, operations. Um, productivity. Um, so it really is a way for folks to really slice and dice for what is meaningful for them. I look at it as it's a starting point that folks can really pull and extract data um, to help them make and drive better business decisions. Okay. Now you were just telling me before we started recording that you have, this is a busy part of the season yeah. for you. Explain to us what's going on right now what do you guys have going on in the background here yeah absolutely so currently we're in our um, phases of reviewing all the compensation data so all the thousands and thousands and thousands of providers that we get submitted to us um, during the collection cycle which runs from January um, through um, the beginning of March um, our team of analysts has really gone through each and every survey that comes in to us um, as a personal touch to ensure sure that what we're getting is um, is valid and makes sense um, in our standards of our production. So currently I am working with the team to finalize um, all of that what we call editing process. So it really is that hands-on experience with um, our participants uh, to ensure that the, the direction that we've set for them to fill out the surveys is really a direction that was submitted to us to ensure that everything they gave to us is um, put into our reports. Okay. And as talking to you earlier, you were talking about working late at <laughs> night, working on the weekends. Yeah. What are you doing? I mean, what's kind of your your day to day as yeah. you're grinding and, and figuring out what's going on out there? 
What are you doing? So I look at it from a holistic standpoint. So while each of our analysts are sitting there looking at each individual surveys, I'm looking at the 150, 170,000 rows of data and actually going through piece by piece to ensure that the specialty and the FTEs and the productivity all make sense to ensure there wasn't a fat finger, to ensure that things were uploaded incorrectly, um, to ensure that there aren't pieces of data that are truly missing um, or if something doesn't make sense, so someone comes in and said, oh yeah, my physicians are actively employed for a 1.0 FTE, but they're compensating $7,000 for annual. Uh, something's wrong there, something doesn't make sense. And those are the pieces um, that I look at at, a holistic, at okay. a holistic view. Right, and that's one thing I wonder about because we, we hear this and I'm, I'm somebody who's not a data person per se, mm -hmm. but I hear a lot about data and I hear that you know data can explain everything, but it can be misinterpreted, it can be, as you were saying, I love the term you used, I think you said a fat finger, that's yeah. just like a, yeah. a missed keystroke it or something. It happens all the time. <laughs> so that that's really um, the exciting part of what we do is right. because I can say with confidence that what we put out, we've done everything that we can to ensure that we're providing the, the best realistic picture of what's going on in the market via data because so many people rely on it. Right. And I love mysteries and detective stories, and <laughs> so are, in a way, are you like forensically going through here and studying? Do you think of yourself as an investigator or something? Like you're trying to uncover what it is to be as accurate and true to what the numbers truly are? I, I've never thought of it in that sense, <laughs> but yeah, I guess you can kind of say it that way. Um, I, yeah, we are kind of the forensics behind it to ensure, like basically what our jobs are are to find inaccuracies to ensure that we're fixing things. So, And we're also building that relationship with our participants, which only gives people a better idea of what MGMA is. Right. Thinking about it, building off of that, are there, as you're researching and investigating, are there common themes, common errors, common ideas, you know, that come into play there as you're, you're studying the data that you have to fix or really keep an eye on? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because everyone calls something different. So what I mean by that is we catch a lot of uh, what we call non-physician providers, APPs in the industry nowadays, um, where they consider them staff on the participant side, we consider them a non-physician provider. And then in the inverse, where folks think that they're APPs, we consider them staff. So it really is trying to really dive into what each of those providers are. It also um, looking at temporary staff. We don't, we capture all that to ensure that we're capturing on behalf of the entire organization and not just each individual physician can submit data. So it's our job to really make sure that people are classified correctly, whether it's a physician, non-physician provider, or a staff. I have to just completely go back in time here and ask you a question. Yeah. So I've heard people pronounce it different ways. I've heard data and I've heard data. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? What what is it? What's the why do people why is there such a difference? Like like people say, oh, tomato, tomato. Nobody yeah. says tomato. No. So No, I think it's like really the difference between like pop and soda. I yeah. think it really is just um I've I've pronounced it both ways. I've uh heard it both ways. Um I don't know that there is a rhyme or a reason to it, or a right or a wrong. <laughs> okay. I think it's really just uh geographically. Okay. 
Okay, very cool. I, I just heard it so many ways, but thanks for clearing that up for <laughs> us. <laughs> Absolutely. Final thing, I'm just curious about this. I always ask people these kind of questions, yeah. but when you were a kid growing up and playing with other kids and everything, doing <laughs> kid kind of things, did you dream about digging through 130,000 <laughs> you know, levels of data and all this stuff? Was that what you were dreaming about? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Um, no, I wanted to grow up and be a dancer or performing anything like that. But no, I've really found a passion in, I do like to identify problems. I do like to identify inconsistencies and I'm kind of that analytical mind in that sense. Um, no, but what I'm really passionate about is making sure that what we produce for our participants and our users um, is the best data available and doing everything I can to meet the needs of what um, they're looking for. Um, so as a kid, no, I definitely didn't see myself in this space of data analytics, nor did I think I was going to be even in the healthcare industry. Um, but this is kind of the direction that I've gone and I've, and I've become really passionate about it. No, that really shines through. and I'm. You said something earlier about problem solving. Mm -hmm. Is that what one of the real fulfilling things about when you can help solve those problems and, and provide that information for our MGMA users and other people out there? Yeah, absolutely. When, when we have an opportunity at this conference to really get feedback, um, and that's something that we haven't really gotten before is that face-to-face -face feedback of what are we missing? What is going on? what's not useful anymore, um, and then you know, take that feedback and build better enhanced tools um, for solving their problems that they can't currently solve. That's awesome. Well, Ashley, thanks so much for joining us yeah, today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Healthcare's business analytics market is projected to grow from $14 billion in 2019 to more than $50 billion by 2024. To help healthcare professionals better understand and utilize data in their practice, MGMA is launching a new event, the Data Conference. This event is a user group conference that gives healthcare professionals access to the tools and hands-on learning they need to analyze, benchmark, and test their data to run a more efficient and profitable medical practice. To give us some more insight on the power of data, we're joined by MGMA member Chris Addison, who will be speaking at the event. Chris, you have a great story about how you came to be a presenter at the conference. Can you share that with our listeners? Sure. Well, when I started at Student Health, my, the CFO of uh, the university uh, had highly recommended um, that I get in touch with MGMA and become a member and start to learn more about the organization and start to use some of the tools that were made available to its members. Uh, so last year I attended the financial conference and that was my first conference with MGMA and I really enjoyed um, that conference uh, mainly because of the amount of data and a lot of the practical examples that were shared at the conference. Um, so uh, as I've kind of got more involved um, in the organization and, and just looking at all the, 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 the awesome options that the organization provides, I had come across, you know, the data section on the website and had started to use some of the data dive a little bit. But um, and then when I saw the ad for the data conference, I thought this would be um, a great opportunity for me to uh, learn more about um, the data side of all of the 
uh, information that MGMA has and be able to apply that to our practice, which of course everyone here would enjoy. But at the same time, it gives me an opportunity to continue to learn more about the industry as a whole. Um, and and I'm a I'm a big fan of of data in general, coming from a little bit of a lean background. Um, so anytime that there's a conference that's focused specifically on data in a field that I'm working in, that's like a that's like a gold mine to me. So I was very excited when I saw that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll I'll revisit that as well. So you and I had that initial conversation. We started talking about the conference, what it would look like, what what do people want to get out of it, that sort of thing. And and I kept thinking about well. Gosh, this Chris guy, he's <laughs> he seems really interested in this and I'm just wondering, you know, cuz the the conference for people who don't know, it's a user group conference. So people will really have an opportunity to be hands-on with their data, you know, from from their practice, how they can benchmark it, how they can measure it, how they can go about increasing efficiencies and all that sort of thing. And so I, I kept racking my brain and, and thinking, wow, uh, Chris just keeps contacting me, interested about the conference, so why don't we have him come in and speak as well? Because this truly is a user group conference. So for our audience, tell them a little bit about how you use the data and, and how it helps you um, helps inform your work. Oh, sure, absolutely. So um, I think I, I previously mentioned I'm a big fan of data. Uh, data is, you know, is very powerful, especially when you're trying to inspire change. Um, and if you are trying to utilize lean principles and make process improvements, or even create any type of efficiency, um, lean principles demand that you use decisions that are data driven. And I found that my practice is very unique in that we are a college health focused organization. Um, so we're very unique in that nature, but at the same time, we have a lot in common with a lot of different types of practices. So um, anytime that we are uh, going to be looking at setting goals or uh, benchmarking or even looking at hiring a new provider, if we have some provider turnover, which we, which we recently have, when we go to post those positions, we want to you know make sure that we are in line with industry standards in terms of compensation. So we can go on, on the data dive and utilize the, some of the compensation reports to make sure that we're in uh, where we need to be in terms of not only our type of practice, but the area of the country that we're in, the size of our practice. So there's a lot of different uh, options that you can drill down in the data to really make it fit your type of practice. Um, so that's that's kind of how we ha have used it, and you know we we use some of the um, you know in our unique situation we we spend a lot of time looking at even uh, benefits comparison as well. We don't have quite as much leeway when it comes to our actual um, salary compensation and some of our compensation models, but we have a really great benefit structure. So when we're trying to uh, hire. Uh, providers or nurses or LPNs or MAs, we try to show them the whole picture because a lot of folks are always focused on that 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 take-home pay, right? But compensation is really more of a package than it is necessarily just a dollar amount. So we utilize all those tools that are available to try to hire and you know attract and attain retain the best talent possible because ultimately we're responsible for providing. Um, excellent care to the students so they can achieve their academic mission here at the university. 
Right. And you were talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, you were talking about uh, compensation and that's actually the presentation you'll be part of. You'll be presenting with Dave Gans, who's sort of an MGMA legend. He's been here almost 40 years now. And I'm sure that's been uh, interesting to get to work with him in developing this presentation. Uh, you'll be looking at benchmarks, uh, independent practices versus hospital systems. And I wanted to ask you, do you have some research or anything that you've worked on in this field that will um, help inform the presentation? Yeah, uh, you know, I plan on sharing a lot of um, the information that, that we utilize here at, at my practice. Um, and as mentioned before, you know, my practice is very unique, and as I'm sure everyone's practice is, is unique, right, in their own regard. But we're part of a very large university, and we also have a very large medical center. However, our specific facility is not affiliated with the medical center. And in fact, we actually compete with the medical center on a, on a daily basis um, for the same type of, you know, providers and, and nurses and, um, you know, MAs and, and everyone that we need to make our practice successful. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of our time and data has been spent on creating those compensation benchmarks so that we can compete with the med center, but also realizing that uh, unfortunately, with the way that you know, our university structure is, once uh, someone is hired in, they're kind of given a salary mark. It is very difficult for an individual on the university side to increase that salary outside of, um, you know, just a standard cost of living annual uh, increase of a couple percentage points. Um, so it's really about um, going back and evaluating, again, the whole compensation package and looking at some of our benefits to see um, how they stack up to uh, other organizations, not just here in, in the Columbus area, but also throughout the, the state of Ohio and the Midwest, so that we could try to put together that compensation package to, to attract um, those talented individuals that, that we need. So that's where a lot of our research has, has focused in on, is making sure that, that we are competitive, uh, again, not just with um, the folks here in Columbus, but also throughout the state of Ohio. Right. now. When you think about this uh, presentation, you're looking at independent practices versus hospital systems. I know you and Dave have, have met at least once already, maybe a couple of times, um, in really carving out what you want this to achieve. So when you think about it that way, what are one or two key takeaways that you'd like to have attendees get from your session? Sure. Well, the big thing is that if you're not, if you wouldn't consider yourself a data expert or a compensation expert, that's okay. And, and by and large, if you can, you know, if I were to compare myself to a lot of individuals, I would not consider myself to be an expert, <laughs> especially in right. this field. Because um, there's, you know, there's always somebody out there that, that has got more years of experience and, and a better, a better knowledge of data. But I think the big takeaway is that you don't have to be an expert to make data, sound data-driven decisions. Um, as long as you have access to the right types of tools and the right types of data and the places to go to, to get that information to help with those decisions. Um, and so I think that's one of the big takeaways for me in my association with MGMA is that using the data that is provided is very valuable and you can still make um, very sound decisions using that data um, even if you don't have a ton of experience, even if you're like me and you're very new to the healthcare industry, you can take your previous experiences um, and apply them with, again, the right tools and the right sets of data, uh, which is uh, 
really the main reason why I would believe a lot of folks are going to be attending the conference in the first place. Yeah. So any final thoughts? Because, you know, this is, you probably contacted me back in January. You said you've been in your particular role for a couple of years and, and now here you are uh, getting to present at an MGMA conference. I'm, what's that been like for you? And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, it's really exciting. Um, it's really fun. Um, you know, my experience last year at the financial conference, like I said, was um, was outstanding. And there's a lot of great information, a lot of great data that was shared. You know, everyone's practice is going to be a little different, right? And so you're not going to maybe walk into a presentation and hear uh, every single thing that you need to know about the adjustments that you want to make to your particular practice, but what you might hear are going to be a, a few tips here and there that that really hit home and that you can take away and possibly make a, a very strong impact on uh, your practice, whether it's through an efficiency idea, whether it's a best practice that somebody else is having, whether it's a different way of, of benchmarking, um, you know, providers productivity. There's just so many different things that um, you could hear at one of these sessions and take back and have a positive impact on your organization. Um, that's why that's why I'm excited for this conference. That's why we've sent, um, you know, we sent two folks to the financial conference this year. We've, we're sending three folks to the operations conference um, down in Texas in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, and then I'm, of course, attending the, the data conference. And it's not just to, you know, presenting is awesome. Uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm going to be there uh, as well to learn and to get some of those uh, tips and some of those uh, best practices that other folks are utilizing and hopefully bring them back here and, again, have a positive impact on our practice. Yeah, that, that really is a great story. I love hearing those kind of success stories. It's so cool that you were, you know, somebody in attendance just a year ago, and now here you are presenting. And so that's just a great message to other members and other people that go to events like this, that there's always that opportunity. If you reach out, you want to you wanna speak, you want to share your ideas and your thoughts with your colleagues and your peers, that there are opportunities out there like that. So Thanks for uh, sharing that with us, Chris, and thanks for being part of the podcast today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much. One of the most important aspects of data for a practice is revenue cycle management. Joining us on the phone is MGMA consultant Linda Berry. Linda's here to discuss the key metrics to use for revenue cycle improvement. Linda, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks, Daniel. It's, um, I'm really, really excited about being part of the data conference this year. In some of our earlier conversations about your presentations, one of the interesting things I found uh, about this revenue cycle improvement program is that you're planning to walk attendees through what you're calling a real-life health systems journey of improving their revenue cycle. And I'm just curious, what does that journey look like? How can you kind of tell our audience about that right now? So the first thing is when I get on the ground, or actually many times before I even get to the client, um, I ask for a whole list of, of different data points and, and reports from them. So analysis is always my first um, step in any engagement. So I, I'll walk through the different things that I ask for before getting on site, and then what I do with those different, um, with all those different data metrics and comparing them to the benchmarks that MGMA has. Um, that helps really guide me when I get on site and start doing some of the interview questions 
it tells me what questions and where I need to probe deeper into, into various areas. Um, and then, then getting on site to, and talking to different people um, from, again, administrators, managers, directors, and even down to the frontline staff in different departments to really understand what their processes are. But the data guides me in the direction of the questions. I'll walk through typical questions I ask because if you're if you're the one that is over revenue or if you're the the, the administrator over any of the practices, it's the type, same types of questions that you would be asking internally if you're trying to diagnose any kind if you're suspicious that there's any type of revenue cycle issue. So the types of questions that I ask during the interviews um, would go into there. And then next step we'll, that we'll get get into is what do you do to fix it. Um, sometimes we can't even necessarily measure things appropriately. If you, if you don't have um, enough adjustment uh, reasons, um, sometimes we are taking a look at that and adding more adjustment reasons in so that we can tweak how much, what they, what they measure and how well in detail they measure it, which, so that that way you can prioritize what um, areas that you need. Lots of times there's different policies and procedures that are in place. So the data drives me to where I can get my biggest bang for the buck um, the fastest, because that's usually what clients are always looking for. Um, and then getting into what reports they should look at on a monthly basis and helping them develop the, the reports that I would typically look at, whether it be daily reports, weekly reports, monthly, and then sometimes quarterly, different things that I would look at on an ongoing basis. So any of the progress that they've seen during their um, the engagement, that they can continue continue it on. So the teaching aspect of, for me is, is extremely important so they can maintain that. And it's just not a, a quick hit success that they really have a full understanding of what they should be doing from the very beginning to diagnosing it to maintaining their, their results. Yeah. Now, I wanna jump to your other uh, session that you're gonna be leading. It's on provider productivity. And when I think about that, I think about the very first conversation and you, you and I ever had, we were talking about revenue cycle improvement and then you, uh, you stopped me at some point and said, wait a minute, I've, I've got this other session too on provider productivity that I think is, is critical. And I, I could really uh, pick up on the passion you have about this topic and how important it is to uh, people in our industry. And I just wanted to get your thoughts here. What is it about this? What is it? that you were so passionate about it and you think that it's of such importance to our audience? I work with many health systems that are trying to figure out what to do with medical practices that they've purchased and, or started. Many times um, they're unhappy with the financial results um, of, the, of, of any other clinics that they may have. When I work with the health systems, um, many times end up teaching hospitals, the administrators on the hospital side, how to properly look at practices, which may mean making sure that they're using benchmarks correctly and sometimes changing their chart of accounts even because if they, you know, if they may see a journal article somewhere, just a, a one-line thing and say, we, you should have this much loss per physician, how they're calculating that loss doesn't always, is not how the benchmarks are. So it's really making sure organizations are comparing apples to apples when they're benchmarking. So that really starts with their financial statements. So they are they truly losing or the, the investment in the practice? Is that the correct number? So making sure that they understand that is, is one part of it. But then getting down into the daily, looking at how many patient visits they have, determining a physician's produ productive, 
determining if a physician is productive, it goes much further than just using maybe one uh, metrics. You should really look at several um, of those metrics to get a, and that way you're able to have realistic conversations. It, unfortunately, I go into so many situations where um, the physicians um, or mid-level providers, they feel like they've been beat up a little bit by administration to say, okay, we're spending all this, this money on the practices. Um, so, that, but they don't get the detail of how do they improve what they're doing, and and really they're just people that work pretty hard every day, and are have their patient the best interest. But because we're not looking at the metrics sometimes correctly, there's a wrong impression about the productivity of a physician. So sometimes I'm able to change some of those impressions on the administrator side, or if we need to improve, you know, productivity. Instead of just saying do better, that's you know a, a phrase that I hear a lot. You need to see more patients. So instead of that being the conversation, it's breaking it down to saying, okay, here's the number of patients. You know, if we can see it, this is what the benchmark says. This is what your counterparts across the country are doing, and breaking it down to if we saw two more patients a day, this gets you where the hospital would like you. Two more patients a day is a lot more achievable. Um, than just do better. So it really defines what, what increasing their productivity means. And, and lots of times it leads for better relationships between the physicians and the hospital administrators. Okay. Well, Linda, thanks so much for all of these insights. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. And thanks so much for joining the podcast today. So how do we deal with the abundance of data that's out there? How do you know you can trust the data in front of you? Data can be a problem if it's misinterpreted, but it can also be an asset to a practice when it's properly analyzed, benchmarked, and tested. One way to do this is by applying evidence-based thinking to a data set. To help explain this, we're joined by Frank Cohen and Tim Smith. Frank's the Director of Analytics and Business Intelligence for Doctors Management, and Tim's Principal of TS Healthcare Consulting. Frank, we'll come to you first. Tell us what you mean by evidence-based thinking. What, what is that exactly? Evidence-based thinking is a precursor to evidence-based decision-making. And evidence-based decision-making is pretty much defines what evidence-based management is about. So that's my goal in teaching this session is to talk about how these all lead towards being successful in evidence-based management. My, my dad used to tell me um, the saying, he'd say, well, it's okay to be lucky when you're lucky. But when you have a high criticality, when the stakes are really high, as they are in, for those of us in administration and management, particularly in healthcare, being lucky isn't enough. You know, making the right decisions significantly increases the likelihood of a positive outcome. And that should be the goal of everybody who's involved in management in healthcare. Okay. Now, <laughs> I think I really, I first realized that people's brains work differently I'm, t I'm dating myself, but going back to the original Star Trek where we had Spock, who was the analytical person, and Captain Kirk, who was the emotional person. But I do realize that, that many people that I interact with, and I include myself in there, we, we often kind of go with those emotional impulses when making decisions. And, and there's, but there is that huge reliance and that need to go back to critical thinking and uh, you know, use information that's based on evidence that we find in data and statistics. And I wanted to talk to you about that. What, what are really the biggest benefits of using 
data and statistics and how can they help how can they help inform decision making at a medical practice well i i think i think to think about what what i focus on a lot is is this idea of it being a, a two-edged sword right because the decisions that we make are only as good as the well in evidence-based the evidence that we have but if it's not if it's based on Intuition is based on how good our intuition is. Look, I, I got to tell you, so many times I've seen this happen, where somebody comes into an organization and their first reaction is, hey, we're going to make all these changes because it worked in my old organization. It must be able to work here. And they make all the changes and it fails miserably. And that's because we base it on tradition. We base it on anecdote. And we can't make, well, we can make decisions that way. But then you're in the it's okay to be lucky when you're lucky part of it. I, I served as a juror a couple times on, on a couple of cases. One of them actually was a capital crime. And, and people had a lot of feelings and emotions in that jury room. And if we made our decisions based on that, then the decision that we would have come to, guilty or not guilty, would not have been based on the evidence. Might as well just throw the evidence out. And let's just talk about how we feel. Right? My, my wife has this saying, and she says, feelings are feelings, but they're not facts. I'm, I'm not going to dis tradition, or I'm sorry, intuition per se, but I think intuition should bring us to the point of exploring the evidence that we need to make the decision. It should be like a rudder. It shouldn't be what we use to make those actual decisions, you know? So, so we have to be careful though. And, and the big caveat is the data that we get, the evidence that we get, it's got to be good evidence, right? And if it's not, then we're in this sort of garbage in, garbage out situation. Right. I love that idea that you brought up the example of being on a jury, that sort of thing, because when you see the, the cases, when they're televised, that sort of thing, there is a lot of information there, but then they, they clearly, those lawyers, they really bring in that, um, that emotional punch as well. Have you always been interested in, in critical thinking? Is this something that's evolved for you as you've built your career? Where did this come from, this kind of love for the idea of critical thinking and evidence-based management? So, you know, this is the silly stories where I knew when I was 10 years old, because my teacher, Mrs. Tenenhouse, was so wonderful, I knew I wanted to be a mathematician. And that's really all I've ever wanted to be my whole life. And so I've always been focused in that area. And I am a bit obsessive compulsive about it. I will admit it. I read, I read course books like they're novels. And, and I, I read my journals um, from cover to cover, from article to article. So it's always been fascinating to me. But what I found is that um, we, make, we make decisions that are so critical in the work that we do. And if we make the wrong decision, sometimes it's not just a simple mistake. Sometimes a lot of people suffer. You know, there's a lot of examples when, when, when we lost um, uh, the shuttle, you know, Columbia, mm -hmm. because um, decisions that were made about the seals not working below a certain temperature and people just were more involved in the need to get it done than the need to do it safely. Or if you remember um, when Krakauer wrote that book, Into Thin Air, and he talked about the people that we lost on Everest that year because they weren't critically thinking. They were thinking with their emotions. They were Correct. feeling the thing. They thought, you know, it's only 300 more feet. I should be able to make it. Well, you know, at 30,000 feet in the air, 300 feet can take you hours. And, and so lives are at stake many times in the decisions that we make, particularly in healthcare. So it's, it's a, not just a fascination with me. It, it is an obsession with me. 
Right. And I did want to ask you that. Is your brain, you know, people's brains do work differently. Are you naturally um, a critical thinker in that sense where the critical skeptic brain, part of your brain comes up first before the emotion? And second part of that question, what tools can you provide our listeners to get them to be more critical thinkers? You know, I, I just heard um, a, a talk by a, a physician who's a friend of mine, and he, he said something that is probably the most profound thing I have heard in a long time. And he said this. He said, genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. And what he's basically saying is that whether you're wired or not for, for thinking a certain way, and, and I think I am. I am wired in critical thinking only because it's it's an obsession so that's just the way it is for me but that doesn't mean that the people that aren't wired that way can't be trained that way right we can always restructure the circuitry in our brain and we can change the way that our neurons fire and the parts of the brains that are stimulated are the brain that's stimulated when we're looking at engaging in, in this type of of a science actually is what it is so so i think anybody anybody could be trained to do this you know Right. Now, any final thoughts on evidence-based thinking and how that can in help improve outcomes in a medical practice? Well, so if you think about it, actually if you critically think about it, I have to add that in. <laughs> um, there are times, and I always ask this question, you know, I say, how many of you have ever made a really bad decision, and, and, but it came out really well and people will raise their hand? And then I'll ask him, how many of you have made a really good decision, even when it was based on evidence and it came out poorly? And they will raise their hands as well. You know, this isn't like the perfect solution to any particular problem. There is nothing. There's always going to be that room for error. We need to think, we need to, to, to accept the fact that we can't overfit this. We can't overthink, if you will, what it is we're trying to do because then we end up sometimes in as much trouble as if we don't think about it at all. But if we make the effort and we use data and evidence and we validate that it's good and we make our decisions based on that, then what I can guarantee is that you'll have a significantly higher percentage of your decisions that you make will turn out to be positive management outcomes. And, and really that's, that's all we can hope for, you know? Right. Tim, let's turn to you for a moment. You're a self-proclaimed data skeptic. Where did the skepticism come from? You know, I, I, I was, had some experiences of drilling into the numbers and doing some retrospective analysis that really gave me a little bit of skepticism, healthy skepticism towards a lot of the, just the popular talking points that I would hear, you know, every day in presentations and in meetings. You know, everybody seemed to drink the Kool-Aid. This is back in the go-go 90s when everyone was buying up primary care practices, both uh, the PPM companies and the hospitals. There was a lot of industry buzz out there related to uh, all these great financial results that were going to happen from those models. And as I began to study them, it, it really didn't turn out that way. And uh, I think the industry, you know, trend actually proved me right and that those, those models really fell apart for a variety of reasons. But that gave me a little bit of skepticism. Healthy skepticism is the word I want to use today. Right. And when we're talking about data, you've done so much research and you've gone in as a, a natural skeptic about it until you've had time yourself to go in and really dig in and look at the numbers. 
when you're seeing these errors or these uh, misapplication of data, what is the root cause that you're seeing? Is it people just truly not understanding it? Is it people cherry picking data points that they like? I mean, what's going on there? Why is there such a, a disconnect in evaluating and analyzing data? I, that's a great question. There's a bit of a superficial approach to financial analysis and, and you know, yeah, financial analysis. And I think that carries over in how we, we do data. Um, the things that we used to do in manufacturing were pretty hardcore. And when I came, you know, it's funny, I started at HCA with a guy who came out of Rockwell and he was a cost accountant. And he and I would get together in, early, in those early days when I was at the surgery center company and talk about just how backward healthcare was. So I hate to, I'm not trying to be negative, but I mean, there just is just this, this, you know, I don't find today that people drill into numbers in the same way that they have in other industries to make sure that they're profitable and they're operating at, at you know, optimum efficiency. So I, I don't think there is a history within healthcare of these, these you know, really numbers-driven um, data analytics um, habits of mind and thinking um, that, we, that you may have elsewhere. So I think that's some of it. I also think that um, the usage of data for valuations is an area where the industry has gravitated towards quick and easy answers. And I, I, you know, a lot of data usage really does come out of the hospital side of the industry uh, with fair market value and what do we pay physicians? And if you if you listen to my, you know, uh, my podcast about uh, practice losses, if you've read some of the things that I wrote in my presentation at the financial conference, you know, we talked about how the economics of the hospital side are very different than the physicians own the, the, the practices are owned by physicians because they have to live within their means, right? They're what you catch. Hospitals tend to be very different in how they look at them. And hospitals are, you know, they don't want to, they're, they're, they've got a lot going on. They've got big operations. Physicians are one component of a larger continuum of care, but there's just a tendency to want to get it quick and easy. But um, we've got to create new habits of mind. And we've got to have a critical eye towards how we use data. And the, the first step, of course, is understanding what the data are. What are the characteristics of the data? How is it put together? What is it intended? You know, what's, its, what's really its intended use? What can and can it not be used for? And getting out of, I think, bad data practices um, that, you know, we'll be talking about some at the conference about what are some of those really bad data practices that are very, very common. And I know you folks at MGMA deal with them on your, I've, you know, talked to the folks in survey operations that deal with questions from users. And, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the data out there. Frank, Tim, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Daniel. It was, it was fun to be here. Well, that concludes our data episode. Thanks to our guests, Ashley Voss, Linda Berry, Chris Addison, Tim Smith, and Frank Cohen. All of today's guests can be heard speaking at the data conference, which will be held May 16th through 18th in Orlando, Florida. As a special offer to you, our podcast listeners, 
you can receive $200 off the regular registration price by entering the code podcast at mgma.com slash datacon. That's data, C-O-N. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. Every review helps new listeners find the show. If you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, please shoot us an email at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.